www.ghanaspeaks.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions that you may have, and if you've been studying God's word and facing a challenge or an issue that you'd like to discuss or a question in your personal life and ministry that you need help on. If we can help, we will do the best we can by God's grace. All you need to do is pick up the phone and call us. The number locally is area code 843-525-1859. We have a toll-free number for our internet listeners, and that number is uh, 1-877, our call letters, WAGP980. And as always, you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question and they'll shoot it to us here on the screen in the studio. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for today's Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor, and I see the phone lines are already ringing. And if you uh, are brave enough to go live on the air, we always give you uh, first preference. But uh, right now, uh, I'm going to assume that they're just uh, dictating their questions. So let's go to one of our emailed questions from David in Birmingham, Alabama, who writes, Pastor Brogy, do you think regeneration takes place before or after conversion? And what did John Calvin believe? Well, it's interesting. It's a good question. I believe that regeneration happens simultaneously with faith. There's a lot of things that happen at the moment of salvation. You're regenerated by the Spirit, or what we might say, born again. We're made alive. Um, We are baptized with the Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit. Uh, there, there's a certain segment of Calvinism that argues because man is dead in his sin that uh, he first has to be regenerated by the Spirit. Uh, one popular, uh, I suppose, hyper-Calvinist, I think that's a fair term to describe R.C. Sproul, is he would, he would take that position. Many Calvinists did not. John Calvin did not believe regeneration took place prior to conversion, but at the moment of conversion— uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who is definitely a, a strong Calvinist, believed that regeneration took place at the moment you believe. So I, I don't think it's, um, it's correct or proper biblically. I will say this, though, because it raises a good point. If man is dead in sin, can he on his own, apart from any help, come to faith in Christ? And I would say no. So uh, some people may say, well, that's just semantical, but it's not. Um, You're not born again, and then you later believe. 
the moment you believe you're you're born again. Uh, the two are equated in John 3, and to make one prior to the other, I think, is, is wrong. But on the other hand, I think it is important to acknowledge that God said plainly, no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. And so if indeed we are dead in sin, there has to be a work of the Spirit. And the Reformers uh, called this in different terms and described it in different ways. They often refer to prevenient grace. That is that pre-salvation grace where God stirs the human heart and reveals to us uh, our need for the gospel. Now, I think God does that in different ways, and man in his free will interjects with the work of God. Uh, God doesn't make us like machines where we are pre-programmed so that uh, man has no say in the process. God takes the initiative, but man still has a free will. Um, anyway, we could spend a lot of time on that question. I won't this morning because we have a live caller and we always give preference to them. So let's go directly to that individual. All right. I actually just listened and I think we uh, probably we lost, lost them. them. You can so, call back if you want. So let's go to the next question then. Uh, all right. Very good. 525 And of course, uh, you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net or um, you can go ahead and... Um, uh, go live, as we said. Uh, the next caller was uh, one who dictated their question, and they wanted to know if you knew anything about the ministry of Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll is a pastor up in the Northwest. He, he pastors a church called Mars Hill. Now, there are some other churches by the same title uh, that have a totally different and really divergent theology. So, be careful when you just hear that title that it's referring to the same church because it's not. Uh, Mark Driscoll is a gospel preaching pastor, and for that I'm thankful. I'm thankful that he preaches God's Word, the Bible, that he preaches the plan of salvation. Uh, sometimes, you know, people get upset with folks that they differ with, but Paul had some folks that he dealt with in Philippians 1, and he said, listen, even their motive for preaching the gospel is bad. Uh, they're trying to create some even trouble for me, but I'm just thankful that in either case, the gospel is being preached. And uh, Driscoll's a young pastor, um, and unfortunately, I think a lot of younger pastors are emulating some of his uh, methodology and style, some of which I think is very dangerous and destructive and a poor example to the body of Christ. So I'm not here to evaluate the man per se, but I can evaluate and talk about what he publicly does, and I think that is worth certainly uh, looking at. Uh, I think that younger men today would be wise to to look at maybe some older pastors. Uh, he needs to mature some uh, as a pastor, uh, and I and I think uh, some of the things that he does and says are inappropriate. I think he's far too crass in the pulpit. Uh, telling jokes sometimes about sex that are inappropriate. And uh, he thinks, I think sometimes it's his bad man image that attracts people and brings folks into the church. And, um, you know, God says in Ephesians that the things done in darkness were not even to speak about. And I think probably the most controversial thing that he's done, apart from being known as a swearing pastor, using profanity in the pulpit, and I, I do think he's toned that down largely through an admonition and a rebuke that came out publicly from John MacArthur. Uh, so I'm thankful at least he had ears to hear on that. But his new book on sex is absolutely disgusting. 
and uh, it, it shouldn't be read by Christians, in my opinion. Um, I don't have to read all the details to know what it's about, and I've read enough reviews on it. I think it's disgusting. I, I think it's uh, rooted in his own pornographic past, and he is so numbed by his pre-conversion experience, and God hasn't grown him enough in there that he's speaking of things that are just reprehensible and shouldn't even be discussed, much less emulated and advocated as a legitimate forms of sexual expression. So, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't listen to him. Uh, I, I've heard a couple sermons by him, and I heard enough. Uh, because, listen, the, the, the Bible teaches that bad company corrupts good morals. And you start listening to dirty jokes and sexual jokes and things like that, and you'll, you'll start picking up on it. And I don't think that's healthy. So he needs to mature. I'm thankful that he's preaching the gospel, but he's very young um, and has, I think, created a poor model that a lot of young pastors are emulating. And when they meet Jesus in the judgment seat of Christ and God evaluates their ministry, they're going to have some deep regrets that they modeled uh, Mark Driscoll in some of the methodologies that he uses. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got that live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Pastor Berge. Um, I have a question for you. Um, I have homeschooled with CBCCA for the past couple of years, and um, my husband wants to put my kids in public school. Um, what do you suggest I do? Well, I would highly recommend that you come in to see myself or another pastor at CBC because, um, you know, your husband obviously um, has some issues that are going on that are driving this decision, and it wouldn't be appropriate for me to discuss those over the air. I don't recognize your voice, but and I don't need to know who you are, and I don't want you to say your name over the air. But uh, let me just say I would come in as a couple and l- let's talk. Uh, because I think it could potentially be a huge mistake for your family. And sometimes, you know, dads are, you know, they, they come home at the end of the day and, you know, they've heard all the complaints and what the kids didn't do and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they think, oh, I've had enough. I just throw my hands up and, and I'm just send them to the public school. And they end up creating problems that are far, far worse that they later regret and wish they had never, ever, ever done. So please just call, set up an appointment in the office, and we'll sit down and talk. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Um, The next listener is uh, from out of state, and he writes, I live near a university library and have used their library to both help my profession and my hobby, which is aquariums. I'm 40 years old and have never married. Sometimes at the library, I have occasion to talk to people, including women, about the Bible and God. My concern is that I don't want my intentions to be misunderstood. My thought is that I should bring some tracks with me to keep me honest. Would it be the appearance of evil to give a girl a track? How should I limit my conversation, or should I just not talk to them at all? I'm already good at that. I don't want to bring shame to the name of Christ because my brain flew out the window under the influence of hormones. Any guidance would be appreciated. That's a good question. I appreciate the spirit of it. Um, Let me just say, people are lost, and God has called us to go and to share the plan of salvation with them. And if God gives you an open door, uh, share Christ with them. Uh, No, it's not um, the—it doesn't take on the appearance of evil for you to give someone a tract or for you to initiate a conversation. I think the problem comes sometimes when— 
people share the gospel with people of the opposite sex is that sometimes they're not wise. Sometimes um, they do not pick up on the fact that the person's interest is not in the gospel, but them sexually or relationally. And so they need to be very, very careful. And and sometimes Christians have used, um, you know, sharing the gospel as an excuse to build a relationship with someone that they shouldn't. So I'll meet young people sometimes. I'll say, well, you know, I I see you're dating so-and-so and and they're not a believer. Oh, well, you know, pastor, I'm, um, uh, the reason I'm dating them is I, you know, I want to win them to Christ. I would hear this a lot in campus ministry. Uh, when I worked with college students, and you know, we used to call it missionary dating. Um, the problem is, is if you can go out on a date for a couple of hours and not have shared the plan of salvation with a person, then you, you're, you're, you've got a bigger problem. Uh, you're really showing what's in your heart, because what comes out on your lips is an expression of what's going on in your heart. And if you can sit with someone for two or three hours and the subject of Christianity never comes up, you know, and you're, you're not, I'm not talking about, you know, you're in some work setting where you're, you know, using the, the boss's time to evangelize. I'm talking about a social setting where you can be with someone for two or three hours and never talk about your faith. Then you've got a bigger problem. And your bigger problem is the fact that your relationship with Christ is less than passionate and it's, uh, it's, it's cold and lukewarm. So, I would say to this brother who's uh, writing here from Maine, emailing us from the state of Maine, look, share the gospel with anyone and everyone uh, that God gives you opportunity. Uh, if you, you know, see what happens, but but don't build don't build long term relationships with these, you know, people of the opposite sex, all in the name of trying to share the gospel with them. All right, good question. Let's go. Let's go to our next uh, our next caller. All right, our next caller would like to know if you have a handout to accompany your course on angelology. Angelology. Yeah, we do, and uh, we have a thing called the Institute of Biblical Studies that Search the Scriptures uh, has set up, and it's a thirty three hour course of study that people can work through in major areas of theology and. And not just areas of theology, but uh, sometimes ministry skills. So like, for instance, one course somebody can take, it's an elective course called uh, Back to the Basics. And it's our discovery class, at least the first uh, nine lessons that are done. It's basic discipleship. Uh, We have a course on angelology, um, angels among us, angels against us. And there are handouts that accompany that. There's a course on eschatology, the doctrine of future things. We spent over 50 Wednesday nights examining that. There's a course on bibliology. There's uh, some 400 pages of handouts for that. So there is a cost involved in terms of printing and so forth, but, um, you know, we'll we'll make them available to you. But you'd need to call Search the Scriptures, and that toll-free number is 877-STS for Search the Scriptures 7478, STS 7478. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And Joe from Saco, Maine, says, I have a question regarding the husband's role and if the Bible addresses stay-at-home dads. My wife and I are expecting our fourth child. I'm currently the primary income for our household, with my wife working per diem to supplement. We have the opportunity for my wife to go full-time after the baby is born. As a nurse, her income at full-time is equal and has the potential to surpass what we make combined 
In addition, she'd be able to do this three days per week. This would require that I stay home. I feel uncomfortable with this as I wouldn't be the provider for our home. Does the Bible address the concept of a stay-at-home dad? Thanks. It's a good question, and you feel uncomfortable about it uh, about it because God's stirring your heart, and he's, he's making you feel uncomfortable about it because that's not his plan and role for you as a father. Uh, as you look at Genesis and the accompanying epistles in the New Testament, it's clear that, that God calls the man to work by the sweat of his brow. He's to be the provider for his home. Uh, God has called women in Titus chapter 2 to be workers at home. Uh, And so, you know, that's the principal place in which she is to find her employment. Uh, There's uh, geoergoses in the New Testament. Geo, we get our word geography. We translate that farmer, uh, the Greek word for farmer. Where does a farmer work? In the field. Uh, there's the word oikos for home ergos. Where does a home worker work in the home? And so God has given women a nurturing aspect uh, for their children and for their home that he didn't create in us. And for you to reverse roles is to do one great damage. It's to set your wife up for disaster and it's to create a bad model for your children. Uh, God calls you to provide. And my hat is off to a a woman who comes alongside and is trying to, you know, help put food on the table. But listen, uh, the primary place for a man is in the world raising the funds he needs. And so here's what's going to happen is if your wife takes this responsibility on, I don't care how good a stay-at-home dad you are, there's things that you will not do the way she does it. And when she comes home tired at the end of a day, she's going to pick right up where she left off because God wired her with the inclination to care and nurture that, those children and to care and nurture that nest we call it the house or the home. And she's going to get burned out. And after a while, you guys are going to start grumbling at one another. And uh, things will be less and less friendly. And then she'll go back to work and she'll find some guy who's talking to who's just really sweet and listens to her like you don't, like you used to. And before you know it, she's emotionally infatuated. And before you know it, she's in bed with another man and your marriage has fallen apart. Listen, when we break God's laws, we're broken by them. And this is not a small thing. This is a big thing. And God has created a model where the husband is the head and the provider And the wife is a worker at home. That doesn't mean she can't earn money from her home or be creative in ways to earn income without abandoning her role. But for her to become the principal uh, breadwinner and for you to be at home when God calls her to be at home would be in direct violation of Scripture. And that's why you feel so bad about it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And maybe you as a couple— should listen to two messages I preached. One is called, Where Have All the Fathers Gone? And another is called, Where Have All the Mothers Gone? And so I would encourage you to look at those two messages. Uh, Most of our messages are now online at searchthescriptures.org. You can download them 
into your computer for free, or you can call and order them directly, and they'll mail them to you. Some are in DV, uh, all or in at least CD form, and uh, they'll mail them to you. And that toll-free number is 877-STS for search the scriptures, 877-STS-7478. Ask them for two messages, where have all the fathers gone and where have all the mothers gone, all right? All right, 20 minutes after the hour, and if you have a question on today's Bible line, give us a call at 525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener who writes, I was recently laid off. Ought I notify the Christian ministries I support of my situation so they can budget accordingly? I'm not sure how ministries budget, or is this showing a lack of faith on my part? Also, since I was not fired, I qualify for unemployment compensation. Is uh, It's my understanding, rather, this is funded by employers, not taxpayers. So is it okay for me to collect these benefits while looking for a new job? Uh, do you have any biblical advice regarding this? I also want to say thank you for your Theology of Money series. Because of this, I've been saving regularly and am in better shape than when I was previously in between jobs. Unemployment benefits, both state and federally, the federal government has gotten into uh, subsidizing a lot of the states since the 2008 crisis as a result of tax dollars collected. And so they take your tax money, a portion of it, and they apply it to help people who are out of work. Certainly, unemployment benefits have been grossly abused. I think there's a system that needs to be reevaluated and looked at. Uh, I see people sometimes taking a six-month or year's vacation. Um, They're really not looking for a job. They don't really want to look for a job because uh, they're taking a vacation paid for by the state and by the taxpayer. I I think there needs to be more accountability to the system. Uh, I think Newt Gingrich had some creative ideas in terms of what might be done for those who are unemployment and some work that they might carry during that time. Uh, But no, I I don't think it's wrong for you to draw benefits. You've lost your job. That's why you paid your taxes. And there's some funds there that are available for you as you hopefully can quickly find another job. And I'm glad you've listened to the theology of money. Uh, It's also uh, been repackaged and redone Uh, handling your finances, and uh, it's a great course where we walk through what the Bible says about stewardship, about debt, about saving, about giving, about investing, and then we help people very practically to reflect those principles in the form of a budget. I, I really need to teach it again because it's been about four or five years since I taught it last, and I did so with my son. We did it on a Saturday Um, But it's a great course. I I recommend, in fact, I require it for couples that are involved in premarital counseling with me if I'm going to marry them because I want them to be successful. And there's a lot of problems that can be stayed off if uh, they will just follow God's principles biblically. So um, when I get off the air today, I will remember you in prayer and ask the Lord to provide the job that, that you need. Let's go to the next caller. I think we have somebody that's waiting live on the line. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I was talking to some Roman Catholics the other day, and talking about salvation and stuff, and I was just having a hard time figuring out where they were spiritually. 
So I was wondering, Dr. Berg, if you could just give me a little bit of what the Roman Catholics believed in terms of salvation and how they would get to heaven, and if that corresponds with the true gospel that's found in the Bible. It's a good question, and let me just encourage you uh, to listen to the series that's unfolding in Romans. Uh, We just stepped into what Luther and Calvin called the most important paragraph in all of the Bible. It's certainly the heart and center of the book of Romans, Romans three twenty-one to 26. And I told the congregation where I pastor at Community Bible Church that we'll spend at least five weeks just on that section of Romans 3. Uh, it's filled with critical terms, theological issues uh, that are so important not just to our personal growth, but also to our ability to communicate the gospel. And as we walk through it, we will definitely highlight some of the distinct differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants. But let me just say in a nutshell, first of all, there's a lot of orthodoxy in Catholicism. Uh, They would affirm certainly the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the infallibility of the Bible, the deity of Christ, um, his uh, literal physical resurrection from the dead. So there's a lot of orthodoxy there. But there's also some grave error that is still there and has been there for centuries. Uh, Roman Catholics would not deny that we're saved by grace. They would just deny that we're saved by grace alone. They would not say that we're saved by faith alone, but we're saved by faith and works. And so the whole idea of being saved totally, completely on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, apart from any good deeds, is something that is denied by Roman Catholicism. If you read the Council of Trent, that was basically the Roman Catholic's response to Martin Luther's 95 Theses. It met over the course of 20-some years in a number of different gatherings, and you can read all the different canons and statements of anathema largely aimed at Luther that are affirmed in the doctrine uh, in the Council of Trent. One of those anathemas deals with how is a man justified— I'm just going to paraphrase it, but I'm sure when I come to that sermon, when I deal with it, I'll quote it directly so you don't get a secondary opinion here or a misquotation. But in essence, they said anyone that teaches that justification is solely on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection and that good works do not in some way contribute to that justification, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. It's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians 1 when he says, if anyone comes to you, even an angel from heaven, as he will repeat a second time, and preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be, and again, the Greek word anathema, the one they repeatedly use there at Trent. Let him be accursed. You could paraphrase it, damned to hell. What a powerful statement that God the Holy Spirit makes through Paul. And he does it in the context of what we call Judaizers. Judaizers were Jewish men who did not deny any more than Catholics deny that Jesus is God in human flesh, that he came from heaven to earth, died on a cross, was buried in a grave, and literally, physically, actually was raised from the dead. But what they did deny is that that was enough, that man, in addition to what Jesus did, has to do something. That's Catholicism in its root. And by the way, that's Protestantism in its root. And it's the average religion of the street. It's certainly amongst peoples in America and countries like us that have been Christianized. 
uh, 90% of America still in some way, shape, or form identifies with Christianity. Um, you live in South Carolina. You're in the Bible Belt. Some believe the buckle has moved from Nashville to South Carolina. Uh, certainly, it probably is one of the most Christianized states. But if you grew up in Beaufort County, I'd say probably 98% of the folks I meet that have been born and raised here, if you ask them, do you believe Jesus is God, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, they'll, they'll say yes. But I doubt seriously that if Jesus returned today that 98% of South Carolinians would go to heaven. And so there is a distinct difference between believing about Christ and believing in Christ. A huge difference. And I would say the average Catholic and more and more the average American and more and more the average Protestant believes about Christ without believing in Christ. They believe, at least partially, if not completely, that good works either save you or they help save you. Where the New Testament teaches that good works are simply the fruit, not the means, but the fruit or evidence of salvation. Now, there's scores of side issues that we could get off on in Catholicism, whether it's uh, their view of the Lord's table or the role of the Pope or their view of Mary and prayer to the saints and all kinds of stuff. Listen, there's a lot of things you can be wrong on and still go to heaven. But there's one thing you cannot be wrong on, and that is the way to heaven. And that is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ plus nothing we do. Uh, Augustus Toplady wrote in 1542 in a hymn, These words, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. God either saves us all by himself without any help from us, or he doesn't save us at all. That's the clear teachings of both Testaments, old and new alike. But again, when we come to uh, these next four or five messages in Romans, listen carefully, because we will do a stark comparison between the gospel as understood by Catholics and the gospel is understood and revealed in the Holy Scriptures. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, a listener says she has heard of other gospels, such as the Gospels of Judas and Mary Magdalene, as well as the Apocrypha. This caller would like to know if these provide any valid and or beneficial information for a Christian. As a general rule, absolutely not. They're just, they're just heretical. And if you want to do some careful study on the apocryphal books, and there's, uh, there's two kinds of literature that you've really raised here, what we call the apocrypha and then pseudo-pigrapha uh, works. The apocrypha are books that are written between the two testaments. Uh, between Malachi and Matthew, there's, <laughs> excuse me, 400 years of silence where there's not a prophet in Israel preaching to the people of God. And so during that 400 years of silence, there were some books that were written between the Testaments. They're apocryphal literature. Uh, Some that the Catholic Church has adopted into their Bible, and so they have more books of the Bible than we have. And even more than the Catholic Church, you have the Eastern Orthodox Church that has more than that. Uh, The King James Version of 1611, understanding their historical value, uh, placed those apocryphal books between the Old and the New Testaments. Now, if you read the foreword to the King James Bible in 1611, they state, 
definitively that they do not believe these books are inspired, but they place them there for their historical values so that people can understand what went on during those 400 years in the setting that the Lord Jesus came into when he left heaven and was supernaturally conceived of a virgin and took on human flesh. So in 1613, when the second edition of the King James Version came out, they removed them because there was such a consternation between Catholics and Protestants. The Catholics basically saying, you see, you, you believe they're more inspired than you really claim. And so they removed them in the next edition of the King James Bible. I do an analysis of those apocryphal books in a course I mentioned earlier in this hour called Bibliology. And it's in the section of that course that deals with the canon of Scripture. Why, why do we just have 66 books of the Bible? And by the way, the Roman Catholic Church has done this a little bit differently. They've taken some of these intertestament books and they have dispersed them through the Old Testaments, through the Old Testament instead of putting it between the two testaments. So, for instance, in the Roman Catholic Bible, there are 14 chapters to the book of Daniel. We have 12 in our Bible. And they take two books of the Bible. They make one Daniel 13 and a second one Daniel 14. They have books like First and Second Maccabees. And again, none of these books, these intertestament books, meet the criteria for canonization. People say, well, man determined what's in the Bible. No, man didn't determine what's in the Bible. God determined it. All man did was recognize what God inspired. And there are certain uh, facets of inspiration that the intertestament books do not meet. Uh, for instance, uh, an intertestament book, if it was inconsistent with previous revelation, it would be deemed false. So, for instance, in Second Maccabees, it instructs us to pray for the dead. Well, certainly, you know, if you're a Roman Catholic, that would be a good thing to do. Because since we're not saved by grace alone through faith alone, since works in some way, shape, or form help justify us, instead of being imputed righteous or reckoned as righteous, righteousness is infused partly by the things that you do. And if you don't do it well enough, then you're going to log some time in an imaginary place that they created called purgatory. And, of course, the doctrine of purgatory is totally consistent with a salvation that is based partly on good deeds. So that's why when I was a child, we would pray for the souls in purgatory. Pray for Uncle so-and-so that he would soon be able to get out of purgatory. We would offer prayers at night for our different relatives that we believed were in purgatory. So prayer for the dead would be consistent with that doctrine, but it's not consistent with what the rest of the Scripture teaches. And when the, inter, when the New Testament, by the way, interfaces with the Old Testament, it doesn't quote the apocryphal books, not even in the book of Jude, as some have falsely concluded. It only deals with what God said or revealed in the Old Testament books, those 66 books. Now, there are some things, certainly, that are revealed in the New Testament about the Old Testament that we don't know, but it comes by direct inspiration from the Spirit of God. But that's not quoting the apocryphal books. 
So what I would suggest you do is listen to my section on bibliology dealing with canonization, where I deal not just with the Apocrypha, but then you mentioned two books. These are what we call pseudepigraphal writings. Pseudo, we get our word false from it, from the Greek word. Graphe, they're false writings. And these were books written after the New Testament was written. Uh, most of them just dripping with heresies, dripping with blasphemies, never accepted by the early church as inspired. Uh, you know, you had guys like um, during the time of um, Dan Brown a few years ago put out a book called The Da Vinci Code, and he tried to, you know, of course, he's, he says he's writing fiction, but I think there's a hidden agenda behind there. But he is arguing, well, the church, you know, had this conspiracy and they were hiding these books. Listen to my sermon on an analysis of Dan Brown's book called The Da Vinci Code. Uh, and I go through uh, some of the pseudepigraphal writings that in that sermon and why the church did not accept them and why they've always been viewed as false and erroneous literature, not inspired by God. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or email us, as this person has, to tbl at wagp.net. Darina from Augusta, Georgia writes, I recently read about the very poor voter turnout in a city near me in South Carolina. It is very disheartening to know that many Christians don't vote for various reasons. And as a result, politicians who oppose God's laws are elected and laws are passed which are in direct opposition to Scripture. With the issues we are presently faced in this country concerning abortion and gay marriage, just to name two, can you give some scriptural references that might instruct Christians on what the Bible says about the importance of participating in the political process by voting? Well, we learn in Proverbs 14 that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Uh, in Psalm 33 in our English Bibles, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord's. And I believe one of the reasons that God has exalted America and blessed America beyond any other nation in the history of the world other than Israel is because we exalted the Lord God. Our founding fathers uh, founded this nation on biblical principles and with a passion to teach their children the Bible and ultimately to evangelize not just the pagan Indians in our state, but to evangelize the world. And so for 150 years, America led in the missions movement. Uh, today, we've basically turned our back on God. We have uh, ignored God. I think the only reason God has continued to uh, stay his wrath and judgment his current expression of wrath that can come in this life is because America still is Israel's best ally. And God promises the nation that would bless Israel, he would bless. But if we start ignoring Israel, and if we start even going against Israel, look out. Just look out, America, because we are in deep, deep trouble. And we have some people in leadership that I believe that is their spirit is really to go against Israel. Now, there are several things that we should do as Christians that we're responsible to do. Number one, we're commanded in 1 Timothy 2 that we're to pray for our nation. And listen, if God's people don't pray, who is going to pray? God doesn't obligate himself to listen and to respond to the prayers of unbelievers. It's the believer who is given the promise 
of being able to approach boldly the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And it's the believer in First Timothy 2, 1 to 5, who is commanded to pray for those in leadership over us. I don't care whether they're Democrat or Republican, whether you like them or dislike them. God has still called us to pray for them. And that's what we are to do. Why? That it might be peaceable for us. Why would that be a good thing? So that we have freedom to share the gospel because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires all men to be saved. That's the thrust of First Timothy 2. Second Chronicles, uh, certainly you could take what God promised to Israel and apply the principle if my people who are called by my name, if we will go to God in in prayer. So God has not called us, I don't believe, to live in some kind of stained glass prison. It's inconceivable to me that the God who instituted human government then told his people to stay out of it. He didn't. You know, people tell me sometimes, well, you know, Pastor, politics are dirty. That's, That's like telling a doctor to stay out of a hospital because germs are dirty. Now, God has called us to be light. He's called us to dispel darkness. He's called us to be salt. He's called us to preserve righteousness. Now, we live in America, and we have a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And if you don't, if you don't get out there and vote, and what's really discouraging to me sometimes are the Christians who are not even registered to vote, who can't vote if they wanted to. But if you don't get out and vote, then you're not rendering to Caesar the things that belong to your Caesar. Uh, It's not a matter of party. It's not a matter of politics. It's a matter of biblical responsibility and biblical principle. And God has called us to represent him. And we are to choose leaders that best represent his godly principles. Listen, right now we've got score. I'm not just talking about our president. Let's add our vice president to it, congressmen and senators who are advocating things that God hates. How can you have, you know, a White House last month that heralded uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual people and gave a month in that honor? That, that's awful. That's reprehensible. And I admire those 120-some African-American pastors who demanded a meeting with the president. As far as I know, he hasn't given it yet uh, to um, basically say, we want to be heard. We didn't elect you on the basis that you would say that gay marriage is now okay. You told us it wasn't okay, that you were against homosexual marriage. Now you're saying it is okay. That's terrible. That's terrible. I'm not, I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking Bible. Uh, I'm talking about congressmen and senators who are in favor of killing little innocent babies in the womb. God hates those kinds of things. I'm talking about a government that is moving in a direction that is going against Israel. And again, I think that is the only reason, the only reason we haven't seen more fire from heaven upon this nation of ours is because we have held to a uh, affirmation for the Jewish people. And we let go of that. We haven't seen, we don't even know what trouble is. And sometimes I just wonder if God's not just turning up the rheostat. You know, two-thirds of our nation this morning as I speak are in drought. We're losing our crops all across America this summer. 
Let me tell you, give us three or four years of that where God turns the faucet off and we'll see how dependent we are on the living God. We think we can live without God, but we are fooling ourselves, but that's what we're doing as a nation. So listen, Christian, don't sit on your can. If you're not registered to vote, do it today. Get registered before this day is over and then go out and vote your conscience. Don't vote your party. Vote your conscience that should be guided and calibrated by the principles in the word of God. All right. Very good. 525-1859. Toll free 877-WAGP980. Our next listener uh, is referring to Hebrews 13.4, which reads, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Uh, their question is, if one marries the wrong person, for example, a non-Christian, is the bed still undefiled? Well, let me uh, define undefiled in the context of that verse. We, we have to read the rest of the verse. Let marriage be held in honor among you and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For, and then he spells it out, namely, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So what he's speaking about here is the marriage bed being defiled by extramarital relationships. And God hates that. And you cannot ignore God's principles. There's discipline that comes in the believer. There's a heartache that comes on the unbeliever. You cannot break God's laws and not be broken by them. Now, if you're married to an unbeliever, either by choice or by conversion, some people, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7, heard the gospel preached. Uh, They were married as pagans. One of them got saved. And so one of the questions that they had for the Apostle Paul, when you come to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, it's a hinge verse in the epistle. He says, now concerning the questions you wrote me about. And so beginning in 1 Corinthians 7 to the end of the chapter, he begins to dialogue based on questions they had asked him. And uh, one of the questions they asked him is, well, if I'm in a mixed marriage, should I do what maybe they did in Ezra's day, where they put away their foreign wives? And the answer is no. And Paul says, no, if you're you know, unequally yoked in that context and your lost husband or wife agrees to live with you, then do it. Stay with them because they can be set apart. Your godly influence can have a sanctifying effect on their life whereby they might ultimately find Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So it's preferable. If you married an unbeliever in ignorance, you thought he was a believer, really wanted him to be a believer, but you found out later he was not, then, you know, again, the will of God is for you to stay together. Uh, God's principles do not change. If you married an unbeliever in willful disobedience, then your first responsibility is to ask for God's forgiveness. Now, I've had people who do theology by experience, and they say, well, you know, I did it, but I was hoping he'd become a Christian, and he did. See, it must have been the will of God for us to get married. You don't do theology by experience. 2 Corinthians 6 says that we're not to be unequally yoked, that what partnership has a believer with an unbeliever, what partnership, what fellowship has the temple of God with idols? None. Absolutely none. Now, it might have been God's ultimate will for you to have married that person, but it was certainly not in the timing that you chose. It is always God's will for a person first to become a believer, and then you marry him. So don't do theology by experience and don't teach that because then you're teaching by 
an unbiblical model others that may respect you, maybe even your own children, who will emulate you, and you're creating disaster for other folks. So don't do that. It's not a good thing to do. Ask for God's forgiveness, and then pray for that unbeliever. So no, you're married to an unbeliever. You have responsibilities to him, to respect him, to love him. Listen to my sermon on 1 Peter 3. Uh, I do one on verses 1 through 6. Uh, that deals with uh, basically the wife when she's married to an unbeliever. And then in First Peter 3, 7, I deal with, with the husband. And a lot of the same principles apply if you as a man are married to an unbelieving wife. So start there, and I think you'll find that very, very helpful. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And email us at tbl at net. Uh, our next listener would like to know what it means to do greater works. Um, when Jesus said, you'll do greater works than the works that I've done, I don't think he's referring to simply miracles. Certainly there were authenticating miracles that the uh, apostles did. But when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also in greater works then these shall he do because I go to the Father. Now, we have people who do healings, but they don't do resurrections. So even those who are saying they're doing healings, and many times they are not, they don't raise folks from the dead. Now, I know, you know, Oral Roberts said he raised some baby from the dead. That's nonsense. He didn't do that. There were some signs, wonders, and miracles that were unique to the apostles, Second Corinthians twelve twelve teaches. Um, the works are not greater in quality, but I think greater in, in, in quantity. And conversion, the Bible teaches, is the greatest work. And so think about it. On the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost and the days that would follow in the next couple of weeks, they saw more people, one, to faith in Jesus Christ than Jesus had in his whole three-plus-year public ministry. Uh, so they did do greater works. And we can still do those greater works today because the greatest miracle in the Bible is the miracle of conversion. It's an amazing miracle based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I have a sermon on that. So if you go to searchthescriptures.org, click on John 14. I don't remember exactly how I broke it up, but you're referencing this caller who just called a couple minutes ago, referencing John 14, 12. Listen to the sermon. You'll see John 14, and it might say 1 to 7 and 8 to 16 or whatever. Wherever verse 12, click on that. Listen to that sermon. I deal with the greater works question in a lot more detail than I just said in the last minute. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Uh, Pastor, just very quickly, I wonder if you have any uh, feelings or opinions about Mark Driscoll. Uh, someone called in a little bit earlier today in reference to that question, and let me just uh, just summarize briefly. I'm, I'm glad that he preaches the gospel. I'm thankful for that. Uh, there are certainly some issues that I have with Mark Driscoll that um, I, I, I am not excited about, and these are not things that are done in secret. These things are in public. There's a lot of young pastors who are trying to emulate him as a model, and sometimes we see people whom we define as successful, and they have a big church and a big crowd, and we think, oh, I I need to follow his example. 
Well, you certainly don't want to follow the example of Joel Olstein, do you, who denies that we should preach about sin on Sunday morning. So he doesn't mention sin, who three times on Larry King Live denied that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. So we certainly don't want to follow him. In in my judgment, Mark Driscoll is a little bit too crass. Uh, He jokes a lot about sex, which Ephesians 5, 3, and 4 says we're not even to speak about such um, crass things. Um, It's uh, not wise, I think, to listen to someone who uses a lot of off-color humor because you'll find yourself doing it. The Bible says don't be deceived. Bad company will corrupt good morals. Um, So... You know, it's not about how cool we are. It's about how great God is, and that should be the focus, and that's where we need to place it. So I'm thankful the gospel's being preached, uh, but as I said earlier in the hour, uh, the book that he recently wrote on sex is disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting, and he's saying things in that book that we should never speak about, much less try to perform and emulate. But he comes out of a background deeply entrenched in pornography, as he openly admits, and I think that has colored his thinking, as Perry Noble and other guys. At least uh, at least uh, Driscoll, once known as the cursing pastor because of his profanity, and there again created a model that a lot of young pastors across the nation said, well, this is what we need to do. We need to use profanity in the pulpit. We need to have the bad guy reputation, and he he almost brags about it still to this day that it's his bad guy reputation that brings the pagans in. Uh, That's not how we grow a church, and pastors who are emulating some of the things that he's doing are very unwise, and when their ministry is evaluated, and by the way, the, the context of 1 Corinthians 3, where it tells us to be careful how to build upon the foundation, the foundation being Christ with uh, perishable versus imperishable materials. Though you could apply it to other Christians, as uh, Romans 14 does, in the context it's written to pastors. Um, And God someday is going to evaluate our ministries to see what quality of ministry it is. And God's not interested just in quantity. Look, uh, I'd rather have a handful of diamonds than a truckload of hay at the judgment seat of Christ, because hay is going to be burned and consumed in a flash but diamonds will be retained. And so we need to be careful. Uh, Again, I'm thankful that he's preaching the gospel, but he's young, he's immature in a lot of his expressions. And if you're a young pastor listening, uh, I think you would do well to heed the admonition of older pastors. He jokes too much in the pulpit. I'm not saying that humor is not a good thing. It is a good thing. But, you know, there's a seriousness that's missing there, and it's not a good example to follow. Anyway, we're out of time today for the Bible line. As always, we're glad that you could be with us. There's a number of questions that were dictated or called in that we didn't get to, but God willing, if the Lord will give us the opportunity, we'll deal with them next time. Have a great day. May the Lord bless you richly as you walk with Jesus Christ. 